0: welcome everyone to another episode of in a nutshell the fortnightly podcast hosted by natural gas world where we look at the global news and trends in the gas industry my name is joseph murphy and with me today is leela banali chief economist at the international energy forum Uh, which which is the largest organization of energy ministers from 71 countries. Hi, Leila. Thanks for coming on board.
1: Good afternoon, Joe.
0: How are you? Very good. Very good. Um, So the oil and gas industry faces increasing scrutiny over emissions of methane, a far more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. Methane emissions are becoming a bigger part of the global climate conversation, and we see various jurisdictions, including the EU and the US, taking steps to address them. Now, in June, the IEF launched its own methane initiative. Leila, could you walk me through what this initiative is and what it hopes to achieve?
1: Yeah, thanks, Joe, for the opportunity to present our our initiative. Uh, I think this initiative, the idea of this initiative came from, I mean, a few discussions that uh, we were having with uh, industry stakeholders and some member countries. But the real I think impetus came when I discussed it with the, with the founders of, of Kros, And we came actually, we, we were agreeing that there is a clear absence of a widely endorsed and standardized methodology for, for methane uh, emissions in the energy industry. I think there is a, an increase in awareness that we need to tackle emissions, uh, especially methane emissions of the energies in the energy sectors, for reasons that we can discuss in in, in this uh, in this podcast, uh, but I think uh, the the absence of a standardized methodology was really lacking. So that's why we partnered, uh, the IF partnered with keros with this there is a ad- leading advanced. Data analytics company uh, to really develop this methodology to accurately measure methane emissions. Uh, and one of the the other issue that we wanted to tackle here is that the methane emissions that are estimated using the traditional uh, bottom up intensities and reporting by companies are about 90% lower than what is being observed by satellite imagery. So, in a very quick nutshell, the methodology that we are proposing. Uh, is combining top down evaluations with uh, from from new satellite technologies and bottom up mm-hmm. estimates uh, from company reporting ground observations and we have been perfecting uh, the advanced modeling through country consultations
0: mm-hmm. and how does this differ from other initiatives like the so you know you have the oil and gas methane partnership methodology um, there's also the methane guiding principles which which sets standards for 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 monitoring and, and, and addressing emissions. Right. So,
1: uh, I think that, well, the good news is that at the end of this initiative, we will be publishing a white paper where we are listing all the initiatives, similar initiatives that have been. Uh, uh, that have been developed since 2004 because there are a number of voluntary uh, or multilateral methane related programs. Uh, The initiative that we are leading here is different from the existing ones uh, because we are accessing a more global and advanced data. We are pursuing a very inclusive approach where we we are leveraging our network of 71 member countries and we have also the ability to mobilize and work on methane and assessments at the country and not at the corporate level. So, of course, the existing initiatives are, that are very different. They serve uh, different goals. Uh, so we are in our case, and some of them are actually uh, using satellite data that is for free, and others are on commercial basis. The initiative that we are that we are proposing is is a methodology that is using publicly available global satellite data from the European Space Agency Copernicus program, and we are pairing that with inversion model and ground level context. And we have been tested that testing that with with countries as we went through the methodology uh so uh, we really commend the work of, of other programs and we really encourage our member countries to use any available and existing tools, but we also had, have a, had a timing element. You mentioned the more potent nature of, of methane and we also have COP26 coming coming soon. So we really wanted to have something available for our member countries first to prepare their revisions of, of the their second revisions of the NDCs in preparation for COP26, and also to have something that can be available relatively quickly for the energy industry
0: Mm -hmm. and you talked about how you bring together uh, the top-down emission emission measurements and the uh, bottom-up methods Um, and you bring them together to to try and to try and create something more more accurate Um, what are the so if you're just taking satellite data on its own um, what are the limitations there um you mentioned that for, sorry you you mentioned uh, that uh, it it um that you know reported methane emissions from the ground are about ten percent of what is observed by satellite um so it, Is there a way in which satellite data can potentially overestimate the figures what are the limitations
1: yeah i I think there are two aspects there joe and i think the fact that you mentioned the word accuracy is important because what we are looking at here is definitely accuracy as much as possible but more importantly acceptance of the methodology by the various stakeholders so we are definitely aware of the limitations of using raw satellite data only and that's mm-hmm. that's why actually we pursued this approach I mean when you take satellite imagery uh, it can be obstructed or even distorted by large bodies of waters, of water like oceans and lakes, mm-hmm. high humidity, clouds meteorological uh, 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 conditions, you have geographic abnormalities, you have temporal issues and also the attribution and we, we, we can discuss later on uh, how it was difficult sometimes to discern when there is overlap with other potential sources like agriculture, like landfills for some countries and and, and when you have energy infrastructure overlapping in those areas. And also we have the natural, the geographic limitations. It's very difficult to accurately measure over wetlands, snow or along the equator. And we have so many countries uh, actually Energy producing and consuming countries that are, are along the equator as well. So we faced this very first hand at the beginning of our initiative in our very first discussions with some of our member countries, which were involved in the initiative, uh, which are, for example, loca- located along, alongside the equator, they, or they have a large offshore production. Uh, mm-hmm. So neither Top-down or bottom-up estimates are perfect on, on their own, uh, but we want to reconcile the methodologies and we want to bring in region-specific operational data, modeling, and artificial intelligence. So we think that the ultimate result should be as accurate as possible with the current technology and be acceptable. That's that's for me is the key word more than accuracy, uh, and and this is exactly why we are combining these different methods. Uh, And the measurements of of methane emissions in in oil and gas production areas have already been made, I mean, as you know, using uh, surface monitors and, and aerial approaches, but we also take into account the cost element. But these these campaigns can be costly, time-intensive, time-consuming, and they can only provide a snapshot of emissions, uh, potentially missing some of the super-emitter episodes. So really, this calls for more frequent and region-wide monitoring of, of emissions, taking into account the cost element for some of our member countries who don't have... Uh, uh, the, the means or or their, their the oil or gas companies operating in their uh, areas do not have the means to 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 have to lead uh, uh, i would say costly monitoring campaigns
0: mm-hmm. and when you bring oh, obviously uh, the bottom up um, uh, way of con- quantifying emissions uh, also has its limitations um, given the fact that you, all of your different members will have different will be measuring uh, methane emissions on the ground to different extents right um, how does that, that 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 must pose a challenge to trying to come up with a kind of uniform uh, method for for quantification no
1: yes now indeed i mean it's it, I'm, I'm not saying it's easy it's been uh, uh i mean challenging to put together a combination of approaches and come up with, this, again, a standardized methodology that would be acceptable and relatively accurate for everyone. So, uh, I mean, that's why we, we are finishing the draft of, of the white paper where we'll we put the D, de- some additional details on the methodology. I can give you, uh, very quickly, uh, some high level, uh, uh, a high level understanding of what we- we're trying to do in this methodology. So we, uh, high level approach, we are proposing to use satellite des- detection systems. And we decided with, with Keros to use the European Space Agency Sentinel 5B satellite because it's carrying already uh, uh, the uh, TROPOMI monitoring instrument Uh, and the satellite itself orbits the earth 13 to 40 times per day and it covers 95 percent of the surface of the earth. Uh, So Usually, I mean, traditionally, the data has been used to, to really reveal individual cases of, of unintended very large methane leaks and, and regional basin-wide uh, anomalies. And that's why we want to complement that with artificial intelligence arg- algorithms, uh, in addition to the existing systems of aerial monitoring and ground-based surveillance to really estimate this uh, accurate methane emission rate. So... Uh, we, in order to uh, analyze and attribute, again, we get back to the cross sector uh, attribution of methane emissions. In order to attribute emissions to uh, a specific energy uh, installation of production or basin uh, from the raw satellite data, uh, we, we we also consider, of course, weather conditions, wind directions, and there are also other ground factors that are considered. And and ros has, has been using and perfecting uh, uh, during this initiative an inversion model uh, and meteorologic, meteorological models that are being used as well. Uh, so basically what happens, I mean, in a nutshell, uh, we take the role satellite data from the Sentinel-5P f- imagery. We identify sub areas within a basin. It can be oil, gas, or coal as well, uh, in some regions like Australia and India. uh, Mm -hmm. And we try to attribute part of the total emissions. Uh, And the combination of of these simulations uh, can explain the atmospheric concentrations of methane observed that is then retained by by the model. I don't want to get too much into the details, but. the, the regional, we take that methodology and we applied it to specific regions and we put basically um, among the member countries who were involved with us in this initiative in three main buckets, if you may, or, or archetypes of, of, of countries and regions. And we will outline that in the white paper in more details. But we prioritize every region according to three key metrics you have the super emitters you have the flaring and you have the methane intensities and every country would have a combination of these three or one or two or out of the three etc and now that we're having this increasingly, we're hoping that with the increasingly available and hopefully more affordable satellite technologies coming from the various initiatives that are uh, uh, happening at the same time, we will improve uh, the, the accuracy of, of the output of the model. And But we added to that. Uh, to, to this, the, 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 as I mentioned earlier in, in, in our discussion, uh, that we had the countries taking the methodology and testing it themselves, uh, testing the numbers that, that we are getting in the methane intensities that we are getting themselves with some ground-truthing as well. So uh, I, I think at, at, the, at the end of the day, once we publish the white paper, in September, we will be in 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 a, in a, in a position to provide much more details on, on the methodology uh, and, and intric- intricacy, and hopefully, we will have a, a, a wider acceptance of the methodology per se. It's not perfect, of course. It's it it it's it really calls to for for additional perfection, uh, but we are hoping that uh, uh, it will create some additional momentum to create that standardized approach that, that I've been talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. And what has the oil and gas industry's track record been so far in in dealing with methane emissions
1: um, uh, I think the 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 oil and gas industry more specifically i mean I have been um, in in tracking and and uh, and trying to monetize the the methane methane mm-hmm. emissions have been doing I would say have been making efforts. Uh, over the last 20 years. Uh, it's just that it has been very bad in communicating around those efforts. And now when you look at uh, the potential upcoming regulations that you have at the country or, 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 or block level, uh, I mean, you have uh, indeed the EU uh, methane strategy that is that has been published in October, 2020. You have the Biden administration, that has been making clear that they want uh, new methane pollution limits to be uh, enforced. I think there's already something there that the industry have been doing in terms of uh, uh, leak detection and, and repair uh, efforts. And, and also the fact that, uh, especially in the gas industry, it's very clear that, Uh, I think there's a number that is floating in the industry that 70 percent of methane emissions can uh, be uh, mitigated and abated at zero or negative costs. So I think it's very much accepted in the industry that this is the low hanging fruit. Um, I think what would be uh, great from from a regulation perspective is. Uh, To bring in uh, to link first the technologies and the incentives uh, uh, to bring better technologies and data to lead to more acceptable and and accurate calculations that would inform regulation and not the other way around, because I think the industry has the tools to uh, to measure and mitigate. Uh, Its methane emissions. Uh, But I think what would be required at this stage, particularly post COP26, is really an accelerated adoption of these standardized methodologies. As I said, we are proposing one. Uh, It can definitely be improved further. Uh, But I think we really have the industry and the regulators have to really start thinking in terms of standards, in terms of monetization, in terms of carrots. In term, rather than just detection and sticks and uh, mm-hmm. let's detect the the, the super emitters. Uh, and I think that's an area that we have been, we at the IEF have been watching very carefully. Uh, and I think uh, the impact, if I take it a step further, uh, post definitely post cop 26, and if I think about it in terms of two, three, four years down the road, in the case of the adoption of cross-border uh, uh, carbon adjustments, mm-hmm. uh, the impact that this would have if the industry is ready is huge uh, in terms of energy trade, uh, and we want to make sure you want to make sure that we are not over penalizing or over compensating uh, some part of oil and gas trade uh, because of we don't we, we have not implemented the tools to. Accurately and uh, measure and de- detect uh, yeah. carbon emissions and methane emissions. Now I'm, I'm, I'm putting everything in the same basket if you don't mind. Um, I think yeah. the EU has a key role to play because it's also a larger, the largest uh, uh, global importer of fossil fuels. But I think there is an issue of fair trade that has to be that will be dealt with in due course by by the major regulators of of this industry.
0: Mm-hmm a few things to pick up there pick up on there um so uh, the iea's uh 2020 methane tracker um it estimate it estimated that 40 percent of current methane emissions um could be avoided at no net cost um which is something you you picked up on um so if it if that's if that's the case um, you know gas companies have all the so many reasons to address their emissions you know they, they can sell the resulting gas that they save they can improve their ESG rating um, you know among and you know make make investors happy if fees cut if these if these emissions can be prevented at no cost why haven't the companies done it already well the
1: companies have been uh, I would say monetizing methane uh, when when they could. I mean, in some areas, uh, you have still have issues of venting and flaring that is, or or, or accidents or, or leaks uh, that that constitute also still a large part of, of of methane emissions. When it comes to the energy sector per se. Um, I mean, the other issue that we are that we can talk about is how this compares to other sectors that are also uh, methane uh, intensive. But for the energy sector per se, I think there are definitely valid reasons why uh, we should de- definitely put additional, uh, not pressure, but as I said, provide more sticks to uh, monetize, to monetize as much as possible uh, methane emissions. Uh, and. It's it's a low hanging fruit for three main reasons uh, you mentioned. One, uh, I can mention another one. I mean, it's definitely a second highest the second highest contributor to global warming uh, after carbon dioxide, and it's more potent in the short term, as you say. So, if here's a historic opportunity for the energy industry to showcase and to communicate on the tools and efforts that it has been putting in place. Uh, the issue is. When it comes to reporting, because if you look at the major oil and gas, major oil and gas industries today, there are the majority of them, the large majority of them have some sort of reporting uh, tools in their either in their annual report on their sustainability report on their methane emissions. And you also have the OEGCI initiative, the oil and gas climate initiative, that is actually a, a, group, a, a grouping of companies, of oil and gas companies, IOCs and NOCs uh, uh, together, uh, and have they have come up with their own uh, industry uh, agreed targets when it comes to methane uh, intensities and, and methane emissions as well. Uh, now, as I said, the issue is really to take the, the further step of of bridging that gap between the 10 percent and the 100 the percent that we mentioned at the beginning of this call uh, the reality the truth the truth must be somewhere in between 50 to 60 percent um and that's that's what we have to agree on not by providing only sticks as i mentioned that's where the regulator has to uh, play a key role here and and we this is where the IEF and other organizations like ourselves are coming in because there's a clear asymmetry of information between the countries and the companies that are operating in those countries. So whatever is been reported by the companies is great. We need to get to that additional mile, uh, uh, and the energy sector is actually much more advanced than than other sectors that are methane emitting. Uh, to bring, as I said, more accepted. Uh, accuracy in in what is being reported today
0: mm-hmm. uh so you mentioned the importance of offering the industry some carrots as well as as well as threatening them with the stick uh to 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 promote action on on methane emissions what could those carrots be
1: I mean I think you've already mentioned some of those I mean if you look it really then depends on which country you're talking to and what are the national circumstances uh, of every country and where the methane emissions are coming from and and I and I will encourage you to read the white paper when it's being issued because you will see the diversity even when it's something as uh, that would look trivial as methane emissions in the energy sector once you scr- once you start scratching the surface you realize that the issue is very different from one country and actually one basin to the other uh, so the way the, the the carrots the incentives that you can give uh, to to the industry uh, at every st- at every stage of, of the game really depends on where you are looking at oil gas coal whether you're looking at Production, transportation, whether we are talking about pipelines, whether we are talking about uh, cross-national pipelines that are crossing a few countries, Um, it it very much depends on depending on where we stand. So uh, having, for example, uh, a a clear understanding of what uh, carbon Price could be. I think that's the the industry has been asking for some clarity on that, at least not necessarily for for a high price, but for a fair price. I think it would be quite important. Uh, Another incentive is the ability to monetize the methane, because in some countries, the regulation does not allow for that at all. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, my, my my screen went totally blank, so I could not see you anymore. Uh, so I think the, the 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 carrots are or the incentives are are very much uh, uh, there for for the for the countries and for the companies to grab. Uh, it, 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 what is required, I think, at, at this stage is just uh, an additional dialogue between the countries and the companies, and uh, uh, I think a lack of. Uh, uh, not a suspicion. I think doing that, in, in, again, as we did in a consultative approach, uh, in an inclusive approach that will take into account uh, those national and basin circumstances and, and industry circumstances, uh, rather than just uh, bringing a top-down approach with, as, as you mentioned, a stick.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you think there's uh, disproportionate scrutiny Towards methane emissions in the energy sector, and perhaps not enough focus on other, ma- other major emitting section- sectors uh, like agriculture—the you know the big one.
1: I think yes, we run into this at the beginning of our uh, of our initiative because, well, first you have indeed 60% of methane emissions that are driven by human activity, whether it's, uh, as you mentioned, uh, agriculture, raising livestock, uh, rice production, uh, landfills, waste management, and the energy sector, of course. And in many countries, I mean, there's a huge overlap between these. So I think it's uh, the scrutiny that the energy sector is is getting i think it's 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 valid and it's good publicity and it's Mm -hmm. i think a historic opportunity for the energy sector to play a good role uh, uh, because it's relatively easier compared to other sectors like agriculture, where we have uh, uh, huge castles dispersed uh, in, in uh, over huge land, it's very difficult to uh, assess and measure uh, methane emissions coming from 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 our agriculture. And I know that agriculture industry has been uh, making some, some steps in that direction. I'm just saying that the technicalities of of it would be much more difficult than. In the case of the energy sector, you have, in several cases, a centralized energy infrastructure where we can very easily, relatively easily, uh, attribute some part of, of, of the emissions to that specific uh, infrastructure. It's easier said than done, but in general, I would say compared to... Uh, uh, the, the agricultural sector, it should be uh, relatively easier. So I think it's for the energy industry is is a golden opportunity compared to other sectors. For the other sectors, you also have, uh, I think, some ethical issues to to deal with as well. I mean, I don't want to s- start a debate here about whether we should continue on a protein-based uh, diet or not, or whether we should continue eating meat or not. Uh, but I think we have some uh, some in other sectors there are some ethical. Issues that are, I think, much deeper uh, than what you will get into uh, the energy sector, where the question is whether you want to have access to energy or not, uh, and whether you want to uh, develop the country or not. So I think uh, the, the the ethical questions are 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 a bit more complicated for other sectors than for for the energy sectors.
0: Mm-hmm. And if we could now just talk about uh, the energy transition in general. Um, so the IEF represents a diverse mix of countries with different uh, geographies, different energy mixes, uh, different economic conditions. Um, so when you, when you come across uh, net zero forecasts like that recently published by the IEA, uh, which essentially says no further investment in oil and gas is needed, if we're going down that pathway towards uh, net zero, um, do you think this this is a useful recommendation, or do you think there needs to be a more kind of localized approach to to how countries should should move along the the energy transition path? <sighs>
1: I think uh, I think we have a number of backcasting analysis and forecasts. I mean, the I.A. is not the only one. These could be useful in their own in their own right, but uh, I mean, the conclusions can be used totally different differently by by the stakeholders. So, in, in general, we don't comment on on, on the work of, of sister organizations. Uh, mm-hmm. And we I mean, we all have uh, totally different mandates. Uh, but when it comes to uh, uh, the localized approach that that you mentioned, uh, we don't think about it. We actually practice it, and that's the real the, really the heart of what the IF was created in in, in the first place. Uh, and I think even before COVID 19 pandemic, uh, and I think you are touching here a very important a critical question, Joe, uh, is the issue of what do you what do you do with global energy governance and mm-hmm. I think even before the pandemic, the global energy governance was being reshaped. Um, and at times it was even questioned, as you know, multilateralism was being questioned. Uh, we've seen shifting uh, superpower dynamics. We've seen a rapidly growing and changing world. Um, the pandemic has exposed some challenges much more than before. Uh, and global consensus building, I think it's quite difficult in in many areas, not only in the energy sector, but uh, in the areas of climate, in the areas of public health, uh, all those, uh, I would say, uh, issues that we would think would require a global response. The issue is now, as you say, as you actually hint at, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you, you seem to be implying that the traditional way of thinking about global governance and requiring a global response is reaching its limits, and we think uh, that there, if I take the if I take it down to the energy and climate question, there are three key areas that are overlooked in the current uh, global energy. Uh, governance landscape. Uh, it's it's a multi-trillion dollars industry uh, sector. It's We have a fast-changing policy uh, environment. We have a fast-changing financial environment. I really want to talk about investments uh, also as well. Uh, and we have a widespread industry restructuring. The energy industry that you will get in 10 years' time it will look totally different, I think, than the energy industry that we have today. So I think issue number one is Clean energy R and D. We can talk about uh, investments in, in 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 renewables and clean energy as much as we want, but we I don't think we can rely on the traditional funding models that we had before. So that's one area that we think is definitely overlooked, and we really want to enhance at the IF. Uh, the understanding of what type of technologies are available today, the new technologies that need to be uh, really uh, developed for tomorrow and the funding models that will need to uh, accompany that. Uh, we think that the policymakers have to create some additional frameworks for more diversified financing of, for technology R&D financial markets have to become more mature in many pl- parts of the world. And I'm, I'm not talking here about the U.S. and Europe, but again, about the 71 member countries that we have. Uh, the second area that we think is definitely overlooked uh, in, this, in these questions is energy pricing, is domestic energy pricing transparency. It's critical to de-risk uh, policy and to encourage investments and, and funding, uh, but we want to get away from uh, the, I would say, traditional bashing of energy subsidies, if, if you will, or energy incentives. Uh, mm-hmm. And for that, we, I want to tackle this issue of... Uh, what it would mean, how how do you price your energy domestically and for your trade? And that's why I wanted to link it to my earlier point about uh, cross-border adjustments. We think that might accelerate that if it it happens, Uh, but if we can standardize how you price energy across the board, including carbon accounting, by the way, in in, in domestic pricing and in energy trade, I think that will be uh, that will increase transparency. It will make it easier for uh, for policymakers to de-risk energy investments and for investors to to continue to invest in the energy sector. And the last the last I think over, overlooked uh, question is there's a Huge hype about new fuels, new carrier carriers like hydrogen, ammonia, etc. Uh, it's all very well, uh however, I think we need much more than just trying to blend, for example, hydrogen in the existing infrastructure to try to, this, especially the amortized uh, infrastructure. We, re, if we really want to scale up uh, these new fuels that seem to be critical for uh, energy transition, um, we would require new business models. Uh, We would require new contractual supply frameworks. We will require uh, uh, new, I would say, uh, policy frameworks that take into account, again, localized circumstances. Uh, Mm -hmm. And for that, we will announce in September a new initiative, particularly focused on hydrogen, In the spirit of of looking into beyond the the debate between green and and blue hydrogen, beyond the debate around uh, which one is costlier than the other, we really want to make sure that uh, hydrogen has in the next few years the contractual frameworks and and the business models that it will require uh, to really be scaled up.
0: And many of the world's leading oil and gas companies are now investing more than ever in, in renewables, um, especially, you know, the likes of BP, Shell, um, and, you know, many others. Um, do you think there's a risk uh, as all of that money gets diverted towards renewables? Do you think there's a risk of underinvestment in in conventional fuels like oil and gas? Um, you know, it can certainly feel that way. Uh, you know, in recent months, you've had, you know, a very fast recovery in oil prices this year. Um, and of course, the, the very, very high spike in, in gas prices. Obviously, that's <laughs> short term, but, you know, it, it gives you the feeling that, um, you know, we, we need to be careful about not, not uh, underinvesting.
1: Yeah, it's all about feelings, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh I mean it's it's a very interesting question, uh, Joe, because um I think you're touching actually two deeper issues that the industry has been uh, has been struggling with. I mean, yes, I mean we've all seen those numbers of uh increased uh, investments by IOCs and some NOCs in Renewable slash low co- low carbon technologies over the last few years increasing to, I mean if you do make the, the maths around 14 15 16 billion dollars uh, uh, per year uh, I think that has decreased last year because of the pandemic um, mm-hmm. as well um, that's still I think less than one percent of of the capex of of the industry in in any case but however if I want to get back to the issue of where you put your investments as, as an oil or gas or energy company uh, integrated or not integrated uh, national or, 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 or IOC or publicly listed independent, uh, I think there are two issues that you are indirectly uh, hinting at, I think. The first one is and when you touched on the net zero backcasting forecast early on, I think it's, it's a key issue, uh, the uncertainty over long-term demand. For oil and gas in investment planning, so all these companies have their own uh, um, <clears throat> investment plan, in-house scenarios that they are using. And the second issue is in a decreasing cash flow environment, within a squeezed margin environment, the relationship between the industry, between oil and gas industry players, and the pockets of capitals and the pockets of and investors, in a way. So on the mm-hmm. first, on the first one, on the 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 uncertainty over long-term demand, how do you plan your investments in oil and gas, in infrastructure, in import and export infrastructure as well? Uh, If you have that uncertainty in investment planning, if you look at uh, a very interesting graphic that we like to, to, to highlight now increasingly, if you look at how uh, the, the analysts that have been plotting the future course of demand for primary energy uh, have been publishing increasingly divergent outlooks, uh, and even, that was even before the pandemic, by the way, uh, and even before the politicians started to commit to uh, net zero targets for for greenhouse gas emissions. And the, pro, the problem has is, is, is been getting worse over the past decade. Uh, to, today, the difference between the highest case and the lowest case for demand. Um, Uh, For oil, if I take the single largest uh, source of primary energy, it's equivalent to half of the total market today, or roughly 55 million barrels a day of oil equivalents. Ten years ago, that difference between the highest case and low case, uh, it did not exceed 30 million barrels a day. It was a third of the market. So, as 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 a company, I mean, of course, as I said. international oil companies and national oil companies alike traditionally use a set of scenarios internally and base their strategy on on, on a few scenarios and and stress tests their strategy and investment plan based on multiple scenarios. However, I think the uncertainty is is definitely huge and uh, the, the communication of that uncertainty is also not helping. And the second uh, issue that that I wanted to raise here is that relationship between uh, the oil and gas industry and investors, and there there is a myth that investors have been abandoning the sector uh, because they're so concerned about ESG risks and stranded assets. Uh, that's not entirely true, and I think we are getting at the bottom of how you allocate capital as 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 an international oil company or as a national oil company. Uh, I think for infrastructure funds and investors, energy remains one of the preferred industry. Uh, it's dramatic, uh, the dramatically entrenched one. Uh, it was hit by three crisis in, in one decade. And for the most part, it has been undervalued uh, and with increasingly squeezed margins. Uh, I think for oil and gas, the pre-crisis expectations were already modest, uh, but I think the real exodus of investors that happened, it was due to the sector providing uh, over the last decade before the pandemic, the lowest return to shareholders compared to uh, other interesting sectors or sexier ses- sectors like IT, real estate, etc. So there is a definitely a risk of underinvestment. There is definitely a risk of uh, difficulty to access pockets of capital Uh, that has been improved recently because you've seen investors coming back to the energy sector because the industry has been uh, uh, willing to reassure investors on this ability to pay back uh, to shareholders, either through dividends or to return uh, on capital. Uh, but I think these efforts have to continue going forward in addition to what we have been talking about at the beginning of this, of this discussion, uh, methane emissions and, and carbon emissions abatement that the industry has to be more serious on, on, on communi- communicating on, indeed.
0: Well, thank you very much. And uh, this has been another episode of In a Nutshell, the fortnightly podcast hosted by Natural Gas World, where we look at the global news and trends for the gas industry. Thank you, and see you next time.
1: Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you.